calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. I'm Jason Voss, CEO of Active Investment Management Consulting. Thanks very much for joining us. Joining me in the conference live stage is Victor Meyer Schoenberger. Uh, he's the Oxford Internet Institute uh, at Oxford University. He's also the professor of internet governance and regulation there. Most importantly in the subject of today's conversation is his just released book, Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think. Welcome very much. Thank uh, th you, Jason. Yes, thanks very much for coming. Um, so, why is data the world's most valuable resource? Well, data is an important resource because it helps us gain insights into reality. And as we gain insights into reality, we make better decisions. And at the end of the day, Jason, that's really what matters, better decision making. Um, I can have all the raw materials in the world, but if I make the wrong decision about uh, where to invest, about what to buy or sell, um, what kind of uh, treatment or diagnosis I get uh, uh, with respect to my health, then uh, my life will potentially be hugely curtailed and suffer. And so gaining a resource that actually improves human decisions as an outcome is phenomenally valuable. Yeah, so talk to us about price. I, I saw your presentation earlier here at the conference, and price is a magical thing containing much information. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, so when we look at markets, in markets we have a lot of decision making going on. Uh, every market um, participant needs to decide what to buy, what to sell, under what conditions and so forth. And for this decision making a lot of information needs to flow in the market. And all that information needs to tra be uh, transferred and transformed into a decision. Uh, and that's pretty hard to do. You know, you just imagine a, a village market going from one stall to the other after you're at the third stall and hearing the similar story but with, with, with different numbers of the bananas or the apples that you're buying, you've confused all of what you've heard. Sure. And so what we have done to sort of overcome that cognitive problem of, of getting all that information and translating into decisions is to to sort of condense all of our preferences into a single figure, and that is price. Price, in other words, has been the grease, the grease traditional markets. And so price, and therefore money, because that's connected to price, is really what makes markets work. Sure, and as you acknowledge, and I know you've written about, it's different now. Tell us why. It's different now because at the end of the day, we always, always knew that the price was a crutch. It, by condensing uh, all of preferences into a single figure, uh, it actually loses a lot of detail. And, of course, because we are so um, biased, you know, uh, behavioral economists know all about that, we tend to overemphasize things that we can compare, and it's easy to compare, like price, rather than things that we should compare, like other preferences uh, in products or other qualities in products. And that leads to transactions that work but are somewhat inefficient. So that's been with us with traditional markets forever. But now we have the ability to convey far more richer, more comprehensive data about preferences, about qualities of the products on markets. 
and we have tools, uh, data-driven decision assistants, that take all of that data and give us a really good recommendation on what to buy or to sell. And that those lead to far more efficient markets. Sure. Let me, are you familiar with the concept of the consumer surplus, the Absolutely. producer? Absolutely. Okay, so is it your opinion that who's winning right now, the producers or the consumers or the sellers or the buyers? Who's got the bigger surplus right now? So for a long time, uh, uh, sellers have been quite able to use information asymmetries to, to, to create surplus in markets, in traditional price-based markets. You know, 20% off. Oh my God, there's a special deal. I don't need it, but I'm still buying it. Right. Um, this is a classical example of creating essentially seller surplus. Um, but data-rich markets work the other way around. In data-rich markets, we create consumer surplus because we are improving the matching between uh, purchasing preferences and what's actually available on the market. And that creates uh, the, the driver, that creates the reason why so many of those uh, online platforms are doing so well. Think about Amazon, think about Google, think about Facebook. Sure, so those data-rich markets, I'd said another way, and I'm not sure if you would necessarily agree with this, what they have done well, those who are especially you know, profiting from data-rich markets, is better contextualization of what are the factors that go into decision-making for those goods and services. Is that right? That, that's right. They basically have solved the communication and the decision problem. Yes. Um, and so, because um, all communication flows on those uh, platforms are centralized, they know how to handle these uh, communication flows, and they can take all of the data that they gain through this uh, possibility, through this uh, layer, uh, and uh, translate that into decision assistance, into sure. recommendations. And that's really where the value lies. A third of, of all transactions on Amazons are based on recommendations that Amazon made. Uh, in essence, that's what drives profits. Right, and of course that has other implications which I know that you talk about quite frequently. Um, I'll get to one in just a moment, but talk to us about how data is changing the idea of money because you laid out a very nice uh, description of what money's components are. Break that out for the audience so that they understand in how the data richness is changing the concept of money. Absolutely. Yeah. For, 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 for a very long time, uh, money has been a store of value and a means of exchange. But it's also had a very important and largely overlooked function, and that is to be the grease in the marketplace. Because through money and price, we express preferences. And, and that kind of did all the matching in the market. Uh, and that kind of value was really indispensable for markets to work. So in other words, money and price uh, are indispensable elements of traditional markets. That's how we are getting informed in markets. But if the new markets, the data-rich markets, inform us through, through a wide variety of data about our preferences, about what's available and what the qualities are of the products, the, the role of money is diminished. And that means we are still going to pay with money in the future, but that's a payment function, that's a store of value function. That's a commodified service, essentially. And the real cool stuff, the real value that's being generated through information flows and markets moves from money and price to data and information. So the first part of your thesis is too much information, we had to reduce it into in a reductionist view into price. The human mind, I know from my own research, can handle about seven things maximum at once. So by having 
with these data-rich markets, is there a limit, though, really, to the benefit that may, might happen from this? Because on the back end, don't you run into the same problem? So now you have better contextualization, better information, but aren't we still kind of constrained by that seven things I can hold in consciousness thing, or you, do you see it as getting better and better? Of course we are still constrained. We can't uh, have a brain change. Yeah. Um, and, and therefore, that's a, a fundamental crux there. The interesting thing is that in, uh, on these uh, online marketplaces, we now get data-driven, machine-learning-based decision assistants. And those decision assistants, those machines, if you want, are not constrained by the seven items. Yeah. They can do a thousand by a thousand matrix just fine yeah. uh, in a couple of seconds. Uh, at most. Yeah. Uh, and that means that we actually now have, uh, in a way, a brain transplant available for us to overcome that cognitive problem that we do. And that means data-rich markets can only get better. So now let's talk about, and as a lead for you, the single point of failure. What are the components of that understanding that the audience needs to understand your point about that? And I think it's an important one. Right, so data-rich markets are actually really better than traditional markets in many ways. Yeah. And that's why we have pivoted towards data-rich markets uh, in the last couple of years. But when you, when you look at, at the, the superstar firms, the, the, the Googles, the Amazons, and so forth, you may, be, uh, you may be tempted to think that the firms are making uh, a comeback. The truth is, when you look at Amazon, at Google, at Facebook, and so forth, they are not firms in the classical sense. They're data-rich markets. Yeah. They operate a really comprehensive, data-driven marketplace. In fact, the largest in the world. And so these superstar firms are incredibly successful because they have understood the power of data-rich markets. But their marketplaces tend to be vertically integrated. They run the marketplace, they run the information flow, and information can do it, and they run the only permitted recommendation engine. And because they're vertically integrated, the decision-making isn't necessarily decentral anymore. Uh, every third decision on Amazon's marketplace is by a recommendation that Jeff Bezos's recommendation engine right. made. And so what we are looking at is a re-centralization of that marketplace. And that means not just, uh, uh, over time, a lack of competition and diversity. It means we are creating a single point of failure. Right. We are relying on Amazon's recommendation engine in every third of our decision, but what if the recommendation engine has a, a systemic bias built into it? Then not just we individually are fucked, pardon my French, but the entire marketplace yeah. is in trouble. Yeah. And that single point of failure really takes away the robustness and resilience that otherwise make markets so successful. So it becomes a political issue at some point there because something outside that system needs to correct, if I understand you correctly, what, what are the mechanisms? Why is this important? What can we do about it? You know, Jason, forever markets needed some kind of rules to work yeah. in order to, to ensure enforcement of contracts or, or uh, ensure trust by parties. Um, and here too, data-rich markets need that. Uh, and we need to move from a centralizing kind of a dynamic towards a decentral dynamic. And politicians are getting aware of that because, because of all the, the debates in the public, whether in the United States or in Europe or in Asia, uh, about the GAFAs and uh, similar superstar firms. And the measures that are being proposed are the traditional 20th century measures to take care of the problem. Tax them, right? Um, as if taking a little bit of tax from Jeff uh, makes the, 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 the fundamental underlying problem go away. Of course it doesn't. Uh, or break them up. 
Well, we saw with AT&T, we broke AT&T up, but didn't change the underlying structural dynamics in telecom markets. And so 20 years later, we have AT&T back up again. Um, similarly, if we break up Facebook, wait for five years and don't change the underlying economic dynamics, we'll have another kind of Facebook back in business. So all these 20th century measures don't really work well, and we need to look at what's at the, at the root of the problem, and that is very uneven asymmetric access to data, which drives innovation. And so if we open up access to data, force the large companies to let some of uh, their competitors access the data, then that creates not just competition, but overcomes the single point of failure problem. So if I'm hearing you correctly, treat data as a public good. Not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. So how does that, what does that look like? You in practice. Have, you don't have to ante and full in, you won't be held to it yeah, for yeah. years later. But no, yeah, what are some ideas about that? No, um, it's very similar to what already existed in the United States. When, when Google about 10 years ago um, bought uh, ITA, a travel backend company, the Department of Justice stepped in and said, uh, from now on, if you, if you want to purchase them, you need to let your competitors have access to the data you just purchased. Uh, for uh, at fair and reasonable terms. Yes. Uh, even if it is Microsoft or, or even if it is Apple. Um, so what the Department of Justice basically said is, Google, you can keep the data, you can milk it as much as you want, but you need to let others milk some of it as well. That, of course, is beautiful because it creates a huge incentive also for Google to use the data more. Sure. And using the data more creates value in the economy and creates innovation. So for my last question, uh, you said it in the conference session, uh, because this thesis eh, sounds slightly pessimistic, but you consider yourself an optimist. Right. Why? I consider myself an optimist because stepping away from a inefficient market of the past towards a more efficient market in order to help us coordinate is a huge step. Is a huge step forward because we suddenly have a, a really good mechanism. You know, the last 200 years, the firm was the predominant organizational unit that helped us coordinate. Sure. Um, but the the firm has diminishing uh, rates of return, value of return, because there's only so much that you can gain from um, making information flows and decision making in firms more efficient. And we have reaped about those benefits through accounting and cost accounting and, and Taylorism and all that. Now we need to really make a paradigmatic shift yeah. and change towards reinventing markets, and we are just doing that. Victor, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks very much for joining us. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.